0: From CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, this is the CJSR edition.
1: I'm Matt Herjie. You're listening to the CJSR edition from CJSR FM 88.5. The CJSR edition explores high and low culture through illuminating interviews, stories, and sounds. Thanks for tuning in. On this week's show,
0: at 2 minutes, 25 seconds,
1: in a world riddled with injustice, how can society's most marginalized individuals reconcile the wrongs that they've been faced with all their lives? Dan Scratch, a social studies teacher at Inner City High School here in Edmonton, says the answer lies in social justice education.
2: I have a short period of time to get these students really engaged in in the world they live in. That's really the goal of it.
0: At 11 minutes, seven seconds,
2: we'll travel down some hidden
1: corridors and hear the brand new track from Edmonton's Diamond Mine. (laughs) Then later in the program, Having a tough time finding work these days? Well, at least you're not in the milkman business. To find out more, we'll speak with Canadian author John DeMont about his newest book, A Good Day's Work, In Pursuit of a Disappearing Canada.
0: And at 50 minutes, five seconds, Edmonton-based graphic designer Jill Stanton gives you a peek inside her psyche with her newest installation, Strange Dream on exhibit now at the Art Gallery of Alberta.
1: This is the CJSR edition. To start off the show, just education with Dan Scratch. Stay with us. Begin. The world immediately outside of the walls of Inner City High School in Edmonton can be a bit cold, even on winter days like this one. The community where this particular high school is located can easily be described, even as a passive observer, as rough around the edges. Situated dead center in a sort of Bermuda Triangle of disrepair to the south of Nate to the east of Kingsway Mall, and to the west of Commonwealth Stadium, this community officially known as Spruce Avenue has largely been forgotten by the economic boom that Edmonton has been witness to in recent years. Houses here are a little bit decrepit, and it's easy for cars to zoom through this dusty, stop gap of an area on their way to somewhere else without ever really turning their heads to something quite incredible that is happening here. You're confronted with a very different atmosphere when you open the doors of Inner City High School. Teenagers here can be caught chatting, laughing, and playing the odd game of basketball. Walk down the stairs, past the cafeteria that serves three meals a day, a hint that this school isn't your typical Edmonton High School, take a right and you'll see Dan Scratch, with his flannel shirt and tweed newsboy hat, bouncing ideas back and forth with a small group of teenagers.
2: Uh, my name is Dan Scratch, and I'm an social studies teacher here at in Inner City High School in Edmonton, Alberta.
1: You know how I alluded to the fact that this wasn't your typical high school in Edmonton? Well, if the generic Inner City High School moniker doesn't give it away, Dan Scratch explains that Inner City High School
2: is a place uh, for inner city youth who um, want a different take on education. Um, It's a place where youth can come and get a different experience to find success within the educational system and move on to reach their own successes.
1: Inner City High was started about 20 years ago.
2: Before that it was a drama program um, meant for inner city youth to kind of deal with the issues that they're working on.
1: And more recently, it's transitioned into a fully fledged independent high school to serve the needs of inner-city youth who fall fallen through the cracks of the traditional high school system.
2: Uh, primarily we serve at-risk youth um, here in inner-city Edmonton. Uh, there are youth that from all over the city that do come um, and attend the school. They'll, they'll bus in or transit in or whatever. Um, most of the students who end up here um, haven't had a lot of success within the, the traditional learning environment. They've either been expelled or they've Um, gone through some sort of trauma within the traditional education system that uh, they've left it from it for some reason.
1: Where they're coming from is a place riddled with complex problems, poverty, developmental learning issues, and for the 95% of students at Inner City High School that are Aboriginal, a legacy of residential schools that left their older relatives skeptical and sometimes even fearful of institutionalized education in this country.
2: Well, if we take the kind of your traditional, stereotypical image of of a traditional classroom or traditional high school, and no offense to my uh, brothers and sisters in high schools out there, but um, here you're going to have a lot smaller class sizes for one, Uh, usually we try and work within a one to six ratio, um, and we try to develop really uh, personal relationships with the students to make sure they have a connection to where they're coming. Um, also in inner-city high school is where we work on accommodation space. We try to work on a, um, a model that sees the, um, the positives in students. So we don't look at them as a deficit that needs to be filled. We look at them as they have strengths and they have knowledge and things they can bring into the classroom to take ownership of, of uh, their learning experience. And give them another sense of what education could be. What could, um, what could their education mean to them if they have all the tools necessary to be able to participate in instruction and in learning?
1: The result of this type of education where students take ownership of their studies, can yield some tremendous results. Take, for example, one particular student at Inner City High. This is a person who's still in the process, I would say. There's no name needed here. According to Scratch, this particular student can act as a stand-in for many of the students who have attended Inner City
2: High over the years. Um, so when he came into my classroom, he could not write a sentence without talking it over with me. We had to go sentence by sentence to even get even to write a paragraph. And that might take two classes to write a paragraph. Um, what was really great for me to see is that last year, uh, through working, through, through, he was a very, um, a student who'd like to talk. And so we were able to talk and we would record his, his voice for an essay. And then he would write down what he recorded. And then he could do it independently, so we could do that that process.
1: And through those essays, this particular student was empowered with the opportunity to write about his experiences as an aboriginal youth living in Edmonton to document the injustices that he's been subject to. Writing about his experiences allowed him to become a critically engaged citizen with the ability to participate with the world around him. This is what Dan Scratch calls social justice
2: education. And he took his diploma exam last year um, in social studies, and he got 67% on it. And that is huge because that's someone who, who has barely ever passed a class in his entire life. Um, and so for, to, take a, to go from living on the streets, going to the Hope, in that cycle, um, to come to school, to write diploma exam, and to pass with the 67% is huge. But this isn't just
1: another story about some kid given a second chance at education, although that is the end result. It's really the story about allowing individuals who have been faced with so much injustice with the opportunity to confront that, take ownership of it, and through the power of education, grow from it.
2: Exactly. And I mean, they're the experts, right? I'm not going to come in here and tell them what living in poverty is like, right? They know what that's like. Uh, I'm not going to tell them what racism is like. They know it. So it's providing an opportunity for them to uh, to demonstrate their knowledge and their skills to their classmates. Because I'm not just, I'm, my, I'm here to facilitate that conversation. I'm here to provoke them with some ideas that they may have not had before. But I'm not here to tell them what their lives were like or what this life was like. And really, I mean, I can spend my time getting them to memorize facts and dates, but that's not going to help them in the world. Social justice is important to education. It's not just learning about certain topics, but it's it's talking about power. It's talking about authority. So it's it's allowing students to question my authority. It's allowing questions to question my allowing students to question my power. Um, and if you would do that, then you what you want to hopefully create is critically thinking, independent, responsible citizens. That's what we're the kind of people I want to live in a world with is people who can think.
1: Reporting for the CJSR edition, my name is Matt Herjie.
0: You're listening to the CJSR edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton. There's plenty more still ahead. Stay with us.
1: Earlier this week, the Edmonton musician Liam Trimble, frontman for the newly formed band Diamond Mind, stopped by our studios here at CJSR to drop off his band's newest EP release, Fake Tapes. And while our music librarian wasn't looking for a second, I snatched it out of his office to share it with you. Here's the song Swimsuit Scene by Edmonton's Diamond Mind. Swimsuit Scene by Edmonton's Diamond Mind from their newest EP, Fake Tapes, is available now. You're listening to the CJSR edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. Faced with all of the pressures of globalization, many of the professions that were integral to building our country are increasingly going the way of the dodo bird. Take, for example, the oft-cited death of journalism, an issue that resonates with me in particular. No longer is the craft of journalism cited as a pillar of democracy. Rather, in a world where people can access their news online for free, The idea of getting paid to write about current events is certainly on the chopping block. And I'm not the only one who's mourning the prospective death of journalism either. Enter Canadian writer John DeMont.
3: Sure, I'm John DeMont. Uh, I guess I'm the author of uh, Good Day's work in pursuit of a disappearing Canada.
1: John DeMont has spent his career writing for newspapers across this country, holding people accountable to their actions and going that extra mile to tell the stories that matter. He's written for such esteemed publications like the Halifax Chronicle Herald, Canadian Geographic, and The Walrus, amongst others.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's being, it's just in a state of turmoil, right? I mean, you know, we just got newspapers or, you know, we've gone, the whole, the, the field has gone through it before in the past, various points, I mean. At one point, there were just newspapers, right? And, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, radio and TV and you just, oh, my God, you know, I'm sure they're saying it's the end of newspapers, which, you know, and now they're saying the same thing and, they're, you know, saying, you know, radio and, and uh, television with the web and all that.
1: It was while mourning this impending death of journalism that Demont started to notice something. It's not just journalism. There's dozens of one's vibrant, good, solid jobs that are vanishing in front of our eyes. When was the last time that you got your milk delivered to your door? DeMont wanted to document these jobs before it was too late. So, he started to write a book about the Canadians today who are still earning their livelihood in some old-fashioned ways. His 2013 book, A Good Day's Work, rides the rails to tell us about a dying breed of die-hard train conductors. Then, he goes on to tell his stories of his encounters with blacksmiths, cowgirls, and of course, milkmen. It's through these stories of dying professions that DeMont distills the essence of our shared past. But in order to do that, our story must begin on Canada's 100th birthday, July 1st, 1967, when John DeMont was just 11 years old, growing up in Halifax. According to Canadian historian Pierre Burden, it was Canada's last good year.
3: First off, I mean I yeah, it's it's an I it's idealized, but it's just I suppose, but it's really more just the way it yeah, it seemed to me at that so straight, white, Protestant, middle class guy in Halifax, which at that point was a kind of much more uh, it's a, it's a it's got a lot of zip these days it was a much more a much quieter more conservative kind of place back then. so I felt sort of blessed really in that I mean nothing ever seemed to go wrong for anybody I knew. Nothing ever went wrong for me I mean I, I would say that I think all childhoods are golden unless they're really terrible right unless you know you've had some kind of awful abuse or setback or something like that I feel you know that, my child, I might have enjoyed it just as much if I lived in Edmonton or if I lived in, uh, you know, I don't know, some other place. But that's where I lived. That's all I have to compare it to. So it was just. It seemed like uh, it was, you know, as Pierre Burton has noted, a great time for Canada. There was the. It was a centenary. Expo 67 was going on, which was like the World's Fair. Everybody was going to Expo 67. I was not. It might, maybe it was the only setback in my <laughs> otherwise wonderful uh, wonderful early life. And it just seemed, you know, there was the original six hockey team, you know, NHL. Everybody was following that. You would followed the CFL. Uh, you know, it was before. There were a couple of radio stations. So uh, everything seemed uh, uh, sort of self-contained and and wonderful and you know you you knew bad things were going on well i get no there were bad things going on i didn't know anything about them because i was 11 years old and we had a couple of newspapers and a couple of radio stations i didn't read any of them so i was just blithely aware of the bad stuff in the world and the bad stuff that might have been happening or less it might it was probably not great not nearly as great if you were a a girl my age if you were jewish if you were a person of color of which you know uh and I, i fully accept that but for me it was great
1: well, 1967, I think, as you alluded to, sort of goes down in Canadian history as, as you said, for some people, yeah. uh, of this moment where all the stars aligned, you know, yeah. like the the Maple Leafs were going to win the Stanley yeah. Cup, uh, we were celebrating our 100th year, yep. uh, we had the Expo in Montreal. So what did it mean for Canada, do you think?
3: Well, it seemed like it was uh, it was a moment when it just seemed like it was sort of all out there waiting for us, right? You know, we're ready to sort of shake off our funny little relationship, well, it's not little, but, you know, with the United States and with Britain, really, you know, able to push forward in our in our own way, really establishing our sort of own identity, I think, at, at that point. Um, and, you know, of course— life is not perfect and all these things did not really you know or did in in some ways but didn't in others come to pass but it at that moment which is probably just like in life it's the sweetest moment when it's all the potential is out there i think it's sweeter than you know actually achieving the stuff of course is the thought that it's all out there and you know waiting for you and you just gotta go out and sort of do it and get it uh, and uh, uh yeah that's just a that's just a great moment
1: I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that potential to yeah. uh, uh, that unleashed potential that it, it seems like the spirit of Canada had.
3: Yeah, well, I think it's uh, and once again, I was 11, so this is my memory of it at the at the time. Uh, well, it just seemed like there was a sort of buoyancy in the air. I think, um, and you know, we so we get. Trudeau was around, and those were great, you know, and it may not have been, I fully accept that in the West, you know, uh, well, you know, so let me go back. Yeah. When did Trudeau come in? 1968.
1: 1968. Okay. <laughs> I'm all, so, I only know that because I'm reading the biography. Are, the
3: biography. are you? The Stephen Clarkson or the- uh, John English. Okay, Right. Uh, so okay, so I'll, can I restart that? Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think in uh, '67 there was just a sort of buoyance in the air, you know, Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, and that was a kind of a great, uh, uh, you know, an exciting. You know, he was a rock star, so he's a year off, but he's he's somewhere sort of bubbling under the collective unconsciousness, sort of there, and so that's that's wonderful. And I think it's just I also think there's a sort of reflected thing going on. There's just an excitement. Uh, that even flowed out of the United States, you know, Muhammad Ali. And, you know, it's sort of a time of heroes, it seemed. That's the way I remember it, you know, Ali, Trudeau, uh, you know, all that, that sort of stuff going on. And, uh, you know, economically, uh, well, you know, we were still trying to sort of, you know, still hewers of wood and drawers of water, you know, as we as remains so to this day. But there seemed, I think, you know, my memory is some of the big corporate sort of families, the great dynastic families, whether it's the Irving family down in the east or, you know, the, uh, the Demarets in Quebec, they're sort of really starting to hit their stride too then. So I just think that the news, if you look at the front pages of the papers, would have been, it would have been detectable, this kind of, uh, um, you know, that we're, we're not, we can start beating our chests a little bit for perhaps the first time in a long time.
1: 1968 marks uh, a definitive time in world history as well uh, with the assassination of Martin Luther King mm-hmm. um, do you think that Canada mm. changed its trajectory in 1968 and where did that take us
3: mm. that's interesting so in, in in truth maybe that you know you kind of look back on these things and maybe you know you impose a narrative right on the past you always do that particularly writers and so I wonder if, if, yeah, so that all of us, yeah, Martin Luther King, you know, uh, uh, so the Kennedy assassinations, uh, you know, Vietnam War and all that stuff, sort of uh, the FLQ crisis is kind of, so if part of the sweetness of 67 was because, be, because it was before 68, when all the crap sort of rained down in some way. So I think everybody sort of, all North America lost its bearings a little bit, it seemed then, you know, in a kind of... You know, and there, there is – in a way, it's it's funny. In a way, it's not unlike now, I suppose. If you look at the kind of, I don't know, revolt seems like a, an antiquated – but, you know, sort of young people, right? You know, there's protests about the Vietnam War. There's protesting, you know, here. And, you know, I remember they – I think they seized – you know, there was, you know, they – you know, uh, did they not seize the Concordia of Computer Department or something around then? So – So not unlike the, you know, the stuff that's been going on the past couple of years, right, in Quebec with, you know, the students are still pissed off, right, in Quebec, it seems, and the, uh, you know, take back Wall Street stuff, and, you know, even the anonymous stuff, there is that kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of come full circle in a way. It's, I don't know what happened. So there's a, you know, I guess it's the big sort of, the big patterns of history, I suppose. So, you know, there's revolt, everybody's upset, and then probably there's a reaction to that revolt. You know, people like the powers, you know, must reflect it in some way and must uh, allow for it, and then it sort of things quiet down for a while, and then it sort of erupts again, I guess. Uh, But, you know, so certainly down in Atlantic Canada, which is where I was living um, at that and in those years, it was kind of, you know, they are trying a whole bunch of different things, Nothing has come to pass. It's basically, you know, it's still sort of. If, if anything is more downtrodden than it's ever been, you know, the the the, the uh, you know the rural areas are hollowing out and uh, and all of that. So yeah, it's an interesting, uh, you know, it's interesting looking at those big patterns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell
1: me what has changed in the last forty six years since nineteen sixty seven, specifically maybe uh, in in the job market.
3: Well, um yeah. Well certainly I mean a lot has changed and a lot hasn't in some ways. I mean, you know, in Canada we're still of course, as we hear over and over again and you read the business page of the ROB, you know, we're still dangerously dependent on, you know, our resources. Um and a lot of the the stuff that everybody has predicted, you know, like sort of the danger, the dangers of being so resource dependent are kind of coming to pass. I I hearken, you know, again, to my personal experience was just down in Nova Scotia, for example. I mean, everybody, it was all coal mining. And, you know, my family are coal miners from way back. So that's all gone. And as a result, these little communities that grew up around the coal mines, as as will inevitably happen in Alberta, you know, when the coal runs out or things change, while they die, you know, and they really, you know, you have trouble finding your new way forward. So that's that's kind of interesting. I mean, we've got our homegrown sort of success success stories, but you know, BlackBerry is, you know, it's just you know, it's a basket case sort of now. And you know, we're still right. It's still you know out here. It's still it's still you know oil or you know in some fashion you know. Uh, petroleum products in some fashion. And down east, it's still, uh, you know, sort of manufacturing. So we haven't, um, you know, that hasn't changed, I think, that much. Although everybody does now, everybody lives in cities now. Used to be everybody lived in small towns. So everybody's living in cities. Everybody's, you know, the, the, the great equalizer, of course, is the net and the web and all that stuff. So everybody's doing, you know, a lot of those kinds of job. So jobs become the same whether you're sitting in Halifax or, you know, someplace in Nova Scotia or someplace in Alberta, they become relatively the same and the experience of life becomes relatively the same too. Um, so certainly the job situation has hastened the, you know, the rural depopulation that's happening everywhere in across this country and everywhere in North America, I suppose. Uh, you know, it seems like you know, jobs are and this is part of the point of this of the book is Used to be that you had to be able to do to do something in the you know classic sense, make something or use, you know, do something concrete. And now the jobs are sort of vaguer, more more ephemeral. Um, you know, you 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 make something, design something on the net, and it, you know goes out, and you know you get paid for it. But you sort of you're not sure. You know, there isn't that. You know, like my uh, you know my uh, my blacksmith in the book. You know, make something. The old way, as they've been doing it for you know centuries and centuries, and gives it to somebody, and that's the exchange of commerce. And he, uh, you know, gets to look in the face of the person who he's made something for and see the delight they have in receiving this object or a service. Well, that's all changed. So I think the jobs—it's getting harder and harder to get that satisfaction. And this is one a point of the book as well—that the personal satisfaction, that you know, the 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 love of doing a job, a good day's work, you know, just for, just for the, just, just to do it well. And it gets harder and harder now because you're so removed from, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, your suppliers and who you're selling your, your products and goods to.
4: A Good Day's Work In Pursuit of a Disappearing Canada by John Dumont. Page 17 and page 18. This book is the quest to distill some essence of our shared experience through people who make their living the time-honored way. By that I mean in a manner attached to the historic traditions performed with the kind of pride that comes from doing something right and well, not just for the money, but for its own sake. The great forces of globalization technology and what we have taken to calling progress are allied against them their time may be coming just as it seems to be near for the drive-in movie projectionists blacksmiths and doctors who make house calls we all know there's no turning back in the midst of a transformation of the global economy every bit as significant as the Industrial Revolution. The factories close, the mines go silent, the last person who know how to do something, catch a fish, uh, fix a car, build a wall that's plumb, hangs up his tools, and closes the door behind him. It's not a happy thought. Uh, this is just how these things tend to go, which is why I need you to come with me now. There are a few people I want you to meet while there's still time.
1: My guest today is Canadian author and journalist John DeMont. His newest book, a Good Day's Work in Pursuit of a Disappearing Canada offers 10 vignettes that document the lives of Canadians who are earning a living in ways that might be more at home, say, 50 years ago. In your book, you list 10 jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh... Everything from a milkman to a locomotive driver to mm-hmm. a, to a train, train engineer to a cattle rancher. I'm curious what your motivation was to endeavor on this journalistic yeah. task.
3: Well, uh, you, ch- you know, for for starters, it was changing all the time. So it could have been 10 very different. At one point, it would have been 10 totally different people. Um, so I kind of had a couple of things in mind. Um, back to my sort of bigger point of the book of this, this passing of the iconic Canada, I wanted jobs that I'd be able to use, I felt, as a jumping-off point to talk about specific aspects of being Canadian. Um, and I wanted... I had written a book about uh, coal mining, you know, sort of told through my family who were all coal miners back to the 1700s. And so I kind of wanted to stay away from the natural resource jobs just because I felt that I'd written about it a lot, you know, in this last book, and I'd just be... Fresher on the subject. And sort of to my next point, I was also, I, I didn't want, I, I wanted to be a little surprising, you know, the, the jobs that are in there. I didn't want somebody to be able to open it up, you know, at the bookstore and go, well, oh, that's precisely who I would have imagined if you're writing a book about disappearing jobs in Canada, you know, a sort of cod fisherman down east and a lumberjack, you know, and a, a Zamboni driver and <laughs> that sort of thing. So I wanted there to be a little bit of a wanted to be able to get to my point or make my points wanted to take across the country and I wanted it to be interesting enough that you know people would be interested and I also wanted them to be able to you know have a good yarn so they'd be you know so they'd be right so some some cases it might have been the job sounded great but I just couldn't find the right right person you know to sort of use to illustrate it
1: well then talk to me about these jobs that have been, slowly disappearing mm-hmm. since nineteen sixty seven, these ten jobs. Mm-hmm. Beyond the classic sort of globalization mm. technological advancement narrative, why are they being eroded?
4: Or why um, are they disappearing? Well I,
3: I think it yeah, you get it on both so you get it on both sides. You get it, I mean, in some cases just um so for you know like my uh, my milkman who is literally my milkman well it's just nobody is people aren't drinking as much milk right off the bat and it's just most people go to the store and buy it and there's not even a real economic imperative I don't think it's any cheaper to get it delivered so um and i so you know many in, in many of the jobs there's that sort of thing at work uh in in with, with the blacksmith well it's just you can get that stuff right in a and people are not so discerning i think people it's lost it's for some people the fact that it's handmade or done in the old in the old ways it means something to some people a lot of people doesn't you know they don't really care right we're in a sort of disposable it's a so it's cultural as well they people don't put as much value on uh the fact that it's it's made by hand by somebody who cares so there's that on the sort of on the uh on the demand side um you know and that's that's throughout throughout these jobs uh you know the locomotive engineers well they're they they drive passenger trains and who drives the train anymore right i mean i love it or who rides the train i love it but most people want to get, you know, it's fast, right? They want to get, you know, so they fly or that sort of thing. So that's that's happening on that end. And on the other end is they're disappearing because in some cases people just don't want to do those jobs. So, for example, I, I don't have a tile and terrazo worker in there, but somebody who, you know, I know a lot of, certainly down in the East Coast, a lot of these um People, craftsmen, are, are Italian for whatever reason. I think there's a tr- there's a tradition in Italy. So, guy comes over, you know, is a tile and terrazzo craftsman, and he and he does that job, you know, after moving here from Italy. And, and his son probably does it, but his the son of the son, the grandson, some kid who sits at home, you know, in the basement playing. Grand Theft Auto all day, doesn't want to go out, which is a lot of kids, doesn't want to go out and I would be the same, you know, and get come back and uh, you know, with white stuff in your hair and, you know, dirty and using your hands all day, you know, it's just or or Bill Bennett, who's the milkman well, he gets up at 12 o'clock and works till 4.30 in the afternoon you know, he starts work at 12 and works till 4.30 in the afternoon, well, you know, his kids don't want to do that, and it's just, so the expectation of Work, you know, the expectation uh, in terms of what somebody expects from a job is changing, and so not everybody, you know, there's just in a lot of people. It's it's hard to find people who want to do these jobs.
1: You said it, but uh, my question was: uh, a common thread throughout this book mm-hmm. is that each of these people doing over the course of their story. Uh, comes out a real sense of stoic pride mm-hmm. in what they do mm-hmm. and that real urgency or real pride in 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 doing the job right. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What what is it about these people that uh, yeah. it has that common
3: thread? Right. Well, it kind of might be, you know, it's possible it's the chicken and egg thing, right? That they are drawn to it's possible it's almost like a genetic thing you know if you're if you're you know in your family or something like that you're drawn to this work because you are that way so you are somebody who you know it didn't matter if you were going to be making a a a locket you know as a blacksmith or you were going to be making a meal in a restaurant or you were going to be I don't know what you know doing some other uh uh you know a gardener you know or something like that you were going to be approaching the work with that same sort of, I, I think of it as, I call it mastery, you know, that, that aspiration of doing it really well. So it's possible they, they you know, that that's, they, they just find themselves in that kind of work. You know, those people, they gravitate towards it. I guess it's also possible that maybe that instinct is there with everybody. In some and I think it is uh you know with most people that 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 desire that instinct is there, and they find themselves so you're doing that kind of work and you find yourself approaching it with a certain a certain way. so it's you know, it's sort of the you uh, so which sort of gets to my point you know uh, 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 a belief I have which is that these. The same instinct, that same desire to do something well for its own sake is it sort of migrates as the economy sort of changes. So as these industrialized jobs disappear, well, you know, you're going to see it on on the web or, uh, you know, there are people doing things the old way, you know, still drawn to it. But there are also people in sort of with the old style philosophy, doing new style jobs, I think. For example, I don't think there's any, it seems to me the essential person in my life is the IT tech, right? The guy who can come in and make the damn laptop work. Uh, So, I mean, that, you know, he deals with people. There's all kinds of problem solving. Uh, You know, you would have a craftsman sort of... uh, uh, um, uh, desire to you know uh, do a difficult job and 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 being able to do it. Uh, you know that that the, the joy you take from that. So I think those, you know, so it, it migrates. So the instinct migrates and it's in a whole bunch of jobs. it will be in jobs that I I don't in I don't can't even conceive of right now, but you know, it continues to it continues to beat somewhere deep in the heart. As a cohesive
1: whole, what do you, what can these ten people doing these ten jobs tell us about who we are as Canadians?
3: Yeah, um, they they can tell us about who we are. They can also tell us about who we were. I think in some ways. Um, so, for example, most of them are in some way. Not all of them, of course, but several of them in some way are are close to the land. You know, they work, you know, whether it's you're a vet or whether you are, uh, you know, milkman is is connected to, you know, dairy and, you know, Marge Vino, the, the great cattle rancher, and, uh, you know, even a blacksmith, something very elemental about it. So we were once much closer to the land in some way. Uh, so that's, you know, and that's about the past. So that's how that's kind of disappearing, I think. We are... And some of these things are not distinctive. I mean, they are distinctive to Canada, but they are also just distinctive to sort of industrialized economies and worlds. I think. I mean, I think we were much, we were once a much, uh, much closer, closer. You know, more. I think you know Canadians are communal by nature, but you know, you were. It was a much more humanized kind of world, I think. You know, now it's just so easy to go the whole day without talking to anybody. You sit in the basement, you know, working your laptop, you know, for work, and then go to the AT, you know, ATM, and you don't even have to go to a video store or movie, just flip, hit on Netflix. You don't have to talk to anybody. And I think that that, you see that, that sort of downside, that manifesting itself in everything from, like, just, and, you know, this will make me sound like I'm a 100, but like manners, right? Common manners, you know, common courtesy, where, you know, of course, we all know, but, you know, like how, you know, when, when you're texting and all this stuff, you know, it's just, you know, people stay stuff on online that they would never say in person, you know, so there's kind of, you know, that, cur- and if you're not, if you're dealing with people 15, 20 times a day, as everybody used to, um, you know, anytime you want to do anything, it meant dealing with somebody, well, you develop sort of common courtesy you know and that kind of goes that's a sort of and what happens too is when you know when these jobs go uh there's a loss of identity because in a lot of these communities so for example keep going back to Nova Scotia but you know there are where there are coal mining communities for example well you know in industrial Cape Breton you know you talk to somebody and they used to say, well, you know, I'm a coal miner, and with a great, immense sense of pride, as if, you know, you're a member of the Princess Patricia, of you know, whatever, you know, like you went to war, or you're a member of a great sports team, or something like that, so, you know, you knew what you were, you know, I know I'm a sort of writer, reporter, uh, newspaper guy, you know, print guy, and so when you lose that job, you know, this... job work that's important to you it doesn't matter I guess if you know you're I I don't think I don't know but if you're working as a in a call center so you lose that job you know the the job I'm assuming doesn't matter to you that much other than in an economic way you need the money but if you just think of yourself as a certain thing and that thing disappears well it's bad in itself but it's also then what are you Mm -hmm. you know so you lose that kind of it's just like you go to these mill towns you know and like you know, their mills are closing all over the place. Well, you know, they took great pride in being a, a mill worker. You know, it may sound hard, some city boy, but, you know, and not particularly glamorous. But to these guys, it was a big deal. So, so we lose some of that. You know, my fear is that there's going to be a sameness to everything, right? We lose the, the distinctiveness of the work, the people, the places, because, you know, when you could do these jobs, you were living in, you weren't, everybody wasn't living in a city, so, and everything sort of becomes the same, you know, is my fear. So we wear the same, you know, I bought this, I ran out of clothes, so I went into the Gap, and I bought this in Calgary yesterday. Well, you know, there's a Gap in, you know, Halifax, there's a Gap in St. John's, there's a Gap, so I get the same, and I'm sure I get the same sweater, you know, I'll leave here and I'll get a Starbucks. Well, you know, so, that is the what sets a, a place apart and what sets people apart from other people kind of gets it's like it gets ground down you know like eroded till we're all just sort of these you know nice people living in cities and drinking our starbucks and you know D- does that pull oh does
1: the, does that pull at the fabric of of Canada as a yeah. as a cohesive country, or, or do we lose something? I, I
3: think so. I think we do, because we are... So, you know, first off, we might not be that cohesive, <laughs> right, in some ways, So we lose that. I mean, one of the great things is always, you know, and the bad things, I suppose, in many ways, is the regionalism, right? You know, the West versus, you know, Quebec and, you know, the Maritimes, you know, the poor boys of, you know, Confederation and all that, and, you know, the, the far West Coast. So if... I guess that sort of regionalism is going to still be there in sort of political sense and all that. But, I mean, I just don't think – it just just seems like everybody's at a certain point, maybe Quebec or, and Newfoundland, I think, are always going to be distinctive. But, you know, the, the two most distinctive places. But when – you know, if it becomes less distinctive, that is uh, – you know, that's that that pulls at our fabric, I think. I think it's – you know, if we're all – if we become the same as everybody else in every city, well, I'm assuming we're going to become become the same as everybody else in, you know, the whole continent, really. So I think it just in a in a very large way, pulls at our uh, pulls at our fabric, and also there's the you know that communal nature, right, of of, you know, the can the country of Medicare and, you know, uh, uh, all of that, you know, where sort of everybody seem to, seems to care about everybody, you know, sort of it, 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 enough that, you know, you vote in governments that, uh, that uh, reinforce those sort of, uh, those feelings and beliefs. And if, you know, if it's dehumanized, I mean, how much before, how long before some of those, you know, those kind of things that make us Canadian, even in the kind of cliched worldwide sense, right? Nice Canadians, you know, they'll kind of, you know, Good guys and good gals—they'll look after you, and you know you're—you're you're never gonna starve, you're never gonna die because you can't get into a hospital. Well, you know if, if everybody's just sort of sitting around by themselves, surely that's got to go at some point, I would think. Although you know, then there is the kind of the <clears throat> the the net and the web, and you know all of that. Those you know, social media is a kind of a a new force there that is. But it just doesn't seem the same to me as sitting in a room with a bunch of people, you know, at a political rally, you know, being in a sort of a mass tweet. You know, it just doesn't have the same kind of – But I guess it does. But just as for an old guy like me, it just doesn't seem as visceral. But I'm probably totally wrong on that. I show my age.
1: That was my conversation with John DeMont. His 2013 book, A Good Day's Work, In Pursuit of a Disappearing Canada, is in stores now. If you'd like to hear more of my conversation with DeMont, where we go into more specifics about the people that he documents in his book, you can visit our show notes at cjsrnews.com slash edition. This is the CJSR edition. And don't fall asleep just yet. There's still plenty more coming up. Dream about last night. If you're anything like Edmonton based graphic designer Jill Stanton, your dreams may have taken you to a strange, dense forest filled with dark corners, curious creatures, and inexplicable eyes peering out at you from mysterious places. That's the dreamscape that Stanton has depicted in her newest installation, Strange Dream, currently on exhibit at the Art Gallery of Alberta. Referencing street art and DIY poster art practices, Stenton's large-scale mural includes hand-painted illustrations pasted together across all three walls of Manning Hall, the public exhibition space located inside the AGA. The result is an evocative experience that draws viewers into the space and inspires questions about how we look at our environment and how our environment can affect our subconscious. Earlier this week, I headed to the Art Gallery of Alberta's Manning Hall and spoke with Stanton about her newest installation.
5: Okay, so um, my name is Jill Stanton, I'm an artist and illustrator from Edmonton and I just installed a work called Strange Dream in Manning Hall in the Art Gallery of Alberta. And it's a 1,900 square foot uh, mural that I've made by drawing with ink on three foot by three foot sheets of paper, and then gluing them to the wall. As far as the process goes, I I made it very small drawing, and then made a made a grid, and then each each one of the squares in the grid uh, corresponds to um, a larger, like the three foot by three foot drawing that I hand drew each one and then pasted it up on the wall using potato and tapioca starch glue. I work a lot with um, dreams and hallucinations, that kind of imagery, so this was sort of an extension of that. Uh, So it's kind of just this dreamlike weird vista of strange creatures and, and that kind of thing.
1: It, it, does it follow a sort of process here? Does it follow a, like a narrative or is it just a, an amalgamation of a whole bunch of ideas?
5: Um, I do a lot of uh, comic work, so a lot of it is is narrative in that sense. Uh, this, this work in particular, I guess, is a little bit less, uh, there's not a, you know, a point A, point B, point C sort of narrative, but there's sort of an implied narrative Within the work, uh, just based on you know, you can kind of get lost. The viewer can get lost within the work, and create their own narrative um, just based on sort of what they see uh, with each each viewing, I guess, of the piece. Each time you sort of look at the piece, or as you look sort of deeper into it, uh, you know, you you might see an eyeball or something, or a little mouth, or you might your eye might think that you see something um, that might or might not actually be there, and it sort of develops this uh, deeper, you know, your eye goes deeper and deeper into it with each time you see it, I guess.
1: You spent uh, quite a lot of time in the last little while on a farm.
5: Right, yeah, I, I guess so. That was, it's almost been three years ago now. Okay. Um, so that was a nine-month apprenticeship on uh, an organic market farm in Duncan, British Columbia, like on Vancouver Island. It was, uh, it was great. I, uh, <laughs> I've always been interested in food and food systems and sort of how our society, uh, you know, deals with food and nourishing itself and how those sort of metaphors play out in, in you know, in art and I guess culture. Uh, so that sort of led me to do that apprenticeship, and it was it was really good. I worked really hard. I made almost no money, <laughs> but I, I learned a lot, and uh, it, it it started to inform. Like I I started to become a little bit more interested in the landscape as uh, as subject matter again, as well. Um, it started to be where the comics really. Uh, picked up, I guess, because I was uninterested in, <laughs> you know, writing a diary or journal or something for this, you know, for the experiences. But I, I did, uh, I did little, you know, dumb comics, I guess, dumb farm comics, uh, and it, it started to be an interesting way for me to keep a narrative about the experiences. Uh,
1: it occurs to me that there's a lot of uh, uh, organic imagery. In this, so is that were those sort of those comics that you started while you're working on that farm? Are they or do, does this is this work inspired by that? Uh,
5: I guess I guess like in a roundabout way, um, I do tend to favor sort of natural forms over more sort of precise drawing because I I tend to work a lot uh, stream of conscious. Um, like none of the none of the drawings here were penciled out first. I I always just draw with ink, um, right onto the paper. So there's not a lot of planning. So I I, I prefer things that I don't have to um, measure and that and all of that. So organic farms are kind of where I tend to stay in.
1: I'm interested in that idea of uh, yourself being a protagonist <laughs> in a lot of your works. We, what, can you can you explain that to me?
5: Yeah. Well, um, I started doing a lot of Um, dreams and hallucinations and stuff like that just uh, because um, I was interested in in dreamscapes as an interesting way to explore composition and form and sort of things that aren't really necessarily grounded in reality without having to worry about making them look too realistic or too you know like they're actually happening or you know
1: Feel like you have particularly sort of vivid dreams <laughs> as opposed to other people. I, I'm curi- I'm only curious because this is sort yeah. of the, like it exists as a physical manifestation of of, right. of dreams, and this particular dream seems crazy.
5: <laughs> well, and like that's the, the other part of the dream thing is it is uh it allows for like all of this crazy stuff to happen, even you know like. Maybe I've had a dream with this sort of strange scene in it, but maybe not necessarily to this extent, but going th- going with the dreams and hallucination uh, sort of theme, you can explore those and sort of bend the rules a little bit, which I'm interested in well it's it's a I guess a relatively new um, thing that I've been pursuing, just like in the past year, I guess a year and year and a bit um, and typically, it's uh, specific dreams that I sort of illustrate as a comic story. Um, so the first sort of ones that I was doing were fairly A, B, C, D kind of panel-based comics, like a traditional comic. Uh, the ones that I'm working on now are a little bit more... I'm trying to create uh, narratives within a compositional work. On Like one page will be sort of a self-contained uh, story not necessarily uh, relying on panels or text uh, in a traditional sense but sort of trying to integrate those things more within one composition I've always been you know interested in art in a traditional sense but the sort of the lowbrow stuff the comic stuff posters that kind of thing has always been the stuff that's really you know, got me. Like, that's the that's the exciting stuff for me. So I guess that's where, you know, the turn that my work has taken. My name is Jill Stanton. I'm uh, an Edmonton-based illustrator and artist, and I just installed a work called Strange Dream in Manning Hall in the Art Gallery of Alberta.
1: That's it for this week's episode of the CJSR Edition. Thank you very much for tuning in. I've been your host, Matt Herjie. This week's episode of the CJSR Edition was produced by The Milkman, with just a milliliter of help from me. Special thanks today to Jill Stanton, John DeMont, Dan Scratch, and Diamond Mind. If you'd like to find out more about this program, or perhaps you'd like to take a second listen why not log on to our website, cjsrnews.com. We also podcast on iTunes. Once again, from everybody who worked on this week's show, thanks for tuning in, and have a great weekend.